Welcome to the GoTo Podcast. In this episode, John LaDrew and Adam Tornhill discuss the correlations between factors such as team size, structures, diversity, and healthy retrospectives on both code quality and effectiveness. Created for developers by developers, GoTo gathers the best minds in the software community. Stay up to date with the latest in tech through GoTo's top-rated events held online and in person in Chicago, Amsterdam, and Copenhagen, and by subscribing to the GoTo Conferences YouTube channel, where you can find thousands more high-quality dev talks. Learn more at gotopia.tech. My name is John LeDrew. Um, I've been working in software, in the kind of software industry, in a whole bunch of different roles for about 20 years. Um, spent a lot of that as a software engineer. Um, and then sort of the last decade, I've sort of slowly moved from being more of a technical consultant to then being um, more of an agile coach and then slowly moving far more into looking into the way we manage teams and lead teams of software engineers than necessarily the hands-on engineering. Um, but I still do a fair bit of all of that uh, as well. Um, my uh, talk this time uh, was looking at collaborative product ownership. So it was looking at how we tend to have, I think it's a bit of a um, this weird thing where I think in engineering we recognize that the... Um, that having like a single engineer that knows all about all of the systems and every you know you have the, the bus problem that that's you know known as being a really bad idea but apparently it's completely okay and is apparently best practice even to have like a single product owner that knows all of the business knowledge for the application but there's no um, challenge there so it's kind of looking at how maybe uh, the whole team can be involved with that product ownership and that you can share that role so that was me <laughs> all right so I'm uh, Adam Thornhill. I'm the founder of Ampere, uh, where I uh, develop uh, code analysis tools. So that's one of my big interests. I'm also the author of uh, Software Design X-rays and uh, Your Code as a Crime Scene on uh, similar topics. And uh, this time I spoke about uh, prioritizing technical depth as if time and money mattered, which happens to be one of my big fascinations. So. Um, what I think I do differently in, uh, when prioritizing technical depth is that I tend to emphasize uh, organizational factors and social factors like teamwork over uh, any properties of the code. So that's pretty much me. Has that changed over um, the, I don't know how many recent years? We tend to work more remotely and on a global scale now. Does that reflect in... Does that reflect in technical depth in the in the code quality? Yes, we, yeah. uh, I think it definitely does. So I've seen a very clear trend. So I think in general, many software projects they are getting larger and larger software. We are building larger, ever larger software systems. And uh, what I tend to see is that we make many technical depth decisions, many decisions to redesign and refactor based on uh, properties of the code, technical properties. But I do think that uh, when we talk about software development at scale, factors like uh, system mastery and team coupling, they should also be drivers of redesign and refactorings to align the organization and the architecture. And it's something I don't see happen that often, unfortunately. I think that the, for me, uh, an area that I work with a lot is teams in, and their retrospectives. And one of the interesting things you will see is, is the very, very common symptom of teams is that 
they go into their retrospective, they have their little moan about how awful everything is. Um, they come out with some, uh, well, hopefully they come out with some ideas for how they might change that. And then two weeks later, they go back into the room for a retrospective and they complain about how awful everything is. And they come up with the same set of things <laughs> to change. And one of the, I, I find the fascinating thing is that, um, and this goes back to actually the topic of your talk, um, is that the uh, is that they'll, you'll often have a well, you know, we just can't get the you know fixing the build or improving the speed of the build or dealing with that area of really poor code coverage or dealing with whatever the issue might be. We just can't get that prioritized over delivering stuff. And I go, but but those things are the things stopping you from delivering stuff. They're the reason why you failed to hit that last deadline, isn't that right? And well, yeah, but you know they just don't understand. I said, but you've told them that. I'm like yeah, and I. And you'll have these conversations, this very strange, these conversations where it's like, so with the product owners a lot of the time, you say, well, so the team, you, you know, you've been in the retrospective and the team have told you these are the things that they consider to be the most important things to them, the, re most re the biggest reasons that are stopping them from delivering to your expectations. And you're not prioritizing those things. <laughs> um, and it has always seemed to be this uh, very... Yeah, it's, it's a very odd um, thing where the, there's a lack of trust, I think, between the uh, engineering team. And I actually think that goes back to my talk, which is around the, the kind of historical links to Taylorism and Taylor and this basic idea of this division between the worker and the, 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 the thinker, as Taylor would describe himself, <laughs> slightly arrogantly. Yeah, I find that really interesting. So... Um I've seen the same situation many times myself, of course, and um, what I find fascinating is that I have this hypothesis that uh, th that situation that you described is much more likely in a larger team, <laughs> because I do think it has something to do with team size, because then you run the risk of running into things like diffusion of responsibility, which uh, social psychologists love to talk about. Yeah. One of the things I know um, you care very much about is psychological safety that it should be, the team should be a safe environment for me as a junior to express my feelings and meanings about what we're doing. But still I feel like doing retrospectives, it's like establishing that room once for a very short time every two weeks. If I was in a team with all this in place, would I need these retrospectives? Um, I think the, so, um, Linda Rising, who's also speaking, she talks quite a bit on uh, the topic of continuous retrospectives. I think there's value in both things. So I think that um, something I've seen, so something I've started doing a lot was I was getting fed up with a particular team. Well, I get fed up with teams that moan all the time in their retrospectives. You go into a retro and they spend the entire two hours moaning about how awful everything is. And... A lot of the time, I, I'm just saying, but look, that thing that you're moaning about, like you knew about that, you know, nine days ago, why didn't you start fixing that then? Why wait until now to deal with it? So we took up a, kind of had an agreement with them that essentially when they raise an impediment, if they face an impediment, we would stick it up on the board and they would start to focus on it right then. So, you know, whatever it's uh, an issue with the test. So what was quite nice was after about, oh, I think it was three 
I don't know, somewhere between um, three or four weeks worth of, of work, we actually realised they came into a retro and they didn't have anything really negative to talk about, not kind of technical things, there was some other stuff. Um, but really it was a really positive retro. So we decided that the, the two weekly retro that we had would be an entirely positive occasion we, after that point. So we deal with all the negative stuff beforehand and we use this as a, as a two-hour session to talk about um, as uh, Woody Zool would talk about, I think he was at Go To Berlin this year, um, you know, turn up the good, you know. And I think that, that, and that became a really nice cycle for that particular team was that we actually began to change that. And so I kind of agree and I disagree. I think that there's a real value in that cadence of a two-weekly retrospective of actually having the time to come in. And even if all you're doing is, is using that time to focus on celebrating your successes, that's really valuable. Mm -hmm. but, the, but, but, that, I, but that you can do on a daily basis I, too. And you absolutely yeah. can, but there's yeah. something wonderful about making it a special occasion. A it's ceremony. Like, it's yeah. like, you know what, yeah. you can, you can, um, you can uh, tell your, uh, your wife, your partner, that you love them you know, every day of the year if mm. you want to, but there's still something special about going, taking them out for their birthday or saying that on Valentine's Day, you know, mm -hmm. you make a ceremony out of it and I think that gives it more potency in some respects. Um, but I do think the, uh, but yeah, I, I definitely agree that in, a, in an ideal world, you almost make that the session for the only point of, I don't know, fixing things, it becomes superfluous, you know. Has any of you ever been in a team where you said, I've tried everything, this simply doesn't work out, I pack my stuff and I leave? I've come very close a few <laughs> yeah. times. <laughs> definitely. I haven't given up yet. Uh, but it definitely happens. But in my experience, that tended to be much more common like 20 years ago when I started out with professional development. And that was still back in the day of the traditional waterfall uh, approach and that could be extremely frustrating at times with the delayed feedback loops yeah. so things are definitely even though we might complain a lot about the state of software development but i do think we have made significant improvements in the past two decades i i completely agree i think that even though there's some of the biggest challenges with kind of agile adoption or moves to different mindsets is that is the kind of the there's lots of companies you know um Doing the, doing the ceremonies, doing the things, having the stand-ups, but not really operating in any way that, that could be described as operating with agility. Um, and while that's frustrating, even just the slight move in that direction allows for a lot more breathing space than, than it did 20 years ago, uh, certainly in, in, <laughs> in my memory anyway. It's a lot better than it, than it was. You often hear that... Um we should strive to make our teams as diverse as possible, in any sense. Can a team be too diverse? Um, I don't think so. Um, I, I think that the, that diversity of thought is fairly critical to solving problems. Yeah. And the greater um, heterogeneity you have in any group, um, the greater... Um, abilities to observe a problem from different perspectives yeah. you have yeah. um, and as well certainly we're at GoTo's these are engineering teams you know they're all doing creative problem solving so that's the thing you want to you want to focus on um, but 
you, I would say that with a uh, the, the skill that we seem to lack in most organisations is facilitation, and you need good facilitation to support and create positive conflict mm. because there will be positive, good, creative conflict in those settings. Mm. And if it's not well supported and and you don't engage people, you you won't get uh, anywhere near as an effective outcome as you might want to. That's a brilliant way to put it: positive conflict. Adam, I see you as kind of um, Mr. Technical Depth in a positive way. <laughs> have, have I you, created my first yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have you ever done any statistics on how the, um, the composition of the team reflects in the quality of what we do? Uh, so, to a certain degree, yes. So I tend to focus, when I do my analysis and my uh, research, I tend to focus mostly on uh, the team level, uh, where we rarely look at uh, individuals and how they compose into teams, uh, simply because I think the team level is most interesting. What I have seen is a very positive correlation with uh, uh, shorter lead times and throughput and small teams. So uh, that's one of the things I'm looking into more and more these days. And I think a small team is much smaller than we would like to think. So what I see is that teams work best when they are as small as three to just four people. Because that helps you avoid a lot of not only coordination overhead, but also a lot of uh, motivation losses that easily occur as soon as a team grows just a little bit bigger. Yeah. So, so small, it's almost not a team. Uh, it is a team. I think <laughs> yeah. what tends to happen is that when you get slightly larger team, we can sp speak about just eight, nine people. What you get is no longer a team. You get a bunch of individuals with largely artificial organizational boundaries around them. It's incredibly hard to keep a team together of a larger size, in my experience. Do you think companies should learn from that, from not just building development teams, but real the way we divide companies in departments. Yes, I think that's actually, I think it's vital. So uh, all this stuff I've been saying with small teams, what that basically means is that the only way to scale is by scaling by having lots of really, really autonomous teams. And uh, in order to pull that off, you need to align it with not only the software architecture, but also the overall uh, business structure of your company. And uh, that's an area where I think and hope we will see a lot of improvements over the next years. I think that the yeah the, the structure of it's a very interesting uh, interesting point around the smaller smaller teams. There, you got me thinking. I think that the something I've seen a lot is that um, I've worked with a lot of companies where they have very very large, very legacy systems, um, and they will often have you know, upwards of 100 people at least working on the system. Now, they're not in one big team as such. But what I've seen a lot of is is how teams or organizations start to divide up that work and those people, you end up with epic amounts of friction between those those teams, whatever that yeah. might be. Um, And that, that actually happens very naturally. Um, there's a kind of an evolutionary bias for us. We like working in small groups, and that's that's great. We have this kind of natural, very natural ability to form that. And we form very cohesive groups very, very quickly. Um, but 
there's a, I think it's Stanley McChrystal in the book Team of Teams. He's the guy that headed up the Joint Task Force in Iraq. And he talks about how when he started with them, the, essentially the squads or the edges of their equivalent of teams was uh, outside of that. That boundary was where everyone else sucked. So you're in a team and everyone else is, is, is terrible. And I see that a lot. And something that I've seen is that the other challenge is that actually what you have is, is the, from a code quality perspective, if you're all essentially working on the same code base, you've got 100 people kind of working on the same code base, then you naturally have lots of integration challenges between, between the teams. And something I've experimented with with some companies is actually saying, well, technically, rather than artificially split you all up and have lots of channels of work, we say, allow you as a team to group yourselves around the piece of work naturally. So technically there's one big team of 100 people, um, but the work comes through, there's a single backlog, and they say, okay, we're going to form small groups of four or five people, let's say often not much more than that, um, around this piece of work that might last a month or maybe even less than that. And they kind of form and then they disband and they move around that. But I've actually found that to be quite effective. So you keep the people working close together quite small, um, but you don't deal, you, you lose that kind of issue. There's lots of um, rotation around those groups, so it means you don't have the issues of, you know, one team following completely different coding style standards than other teams, which sometimes happens, or other teams uh, having very uh, undisciplined approaches to, push, to testing before they push up to the build server and stopping the entire department. So you can end up with some quite... Um, yeah, it's kind of like a combination of saying, actually, technically the team's got 100 people in it, but in reality, there's never more than, you know, four to six, I think, was probably the largest group we had um, working together at once for any length of time. Um, but I've I found that to be quite effective. But, I mean, saying that, that the code base on that particular project was was at quite, <laughs> quite a bad state to begin yeah. with, so um, it was hard to... Uh, and I think that's uh, where we as an industry have a lot of learning to do because uh, we are pretty good at the technical aspects of software architecture, but we are not doing a particular good job at organizing software architectures according to boundaries of the teams. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, when you have that misalignment, that's when things start to become really, really expensive. Is it uh, Conway's law, reverse Conway's law? Yeah, kind of, yeah. And there's a lot of truth to it. You know... Um, there's this very good research from, uh, I think it's from Microsoft Research, where they point out that organizational factors like the number of developers that work in parallel on piece of code is are better predictors of uh, quality issues than any properties of the code itself. Yeah. Hmm. I, I mean, I think that the, um, you mentioned my love of psychological safety, and obviously Google did their Project Aristotle study, and it basically demonstrated that you know, um, there are these five indicators around psych specific psychological safety being the yeah. critical one that demonstrated the kind of effectiveness of their teams. Now, this wasn't just software teams, but amazingly, when they were looking at software teams, um, if you had two teams, you might assume that, you know, team A is doing really well and team B is not doing very well, that maybe team A had more competent engineers and more experienced engineers. But that wasn't true in any of their studies, essentially. The, you could take a team of five you know, mid-level or even junior engineers, and they could be more effective at delivering against expectations than an, uh, a team of five senior engineers that had um, that had low levels of psychological safety in the team and they weren't communicating effectively. And um, I think that, yeah, there's still a lot of, a huge amount of research to do in that space because I don't think we've, 
really, uh, you know, I mean, the work of Amy Edmondson and other people looking into it, but I, I think that we've kind of only scratched the surface of something that's quite, I mean, to me, that's incredibly profound to suggest that, you know, to demonstrably, with research, demonstrate that you take a group of people that by all, all uh, you know, objective um, facts would say that these people are more effective and more experienced engineers than this group of people, that this group are more likely to be effective even though they have less experience. For a bunch of unrelated, apparently unrelated traits, it seems kind yeah. of, uh, kind of mind-blowing to me. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. I think we could go on forever here. We have <laughs> plenty of stuff already. Thank you so much. Thank you It very was much. a wonderful conversation. Yeah, yeah. thanks very yeah. much. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the GoTo Podcast. Head over to gotopia.tech for lots more content from the brightest minds in software development.